we're living with a legacy sports system that we built to the Sydney Olympics that has been unsustainable for a significant amount of time. And if the government pulled money, which we've just seen happen with the Commonwealth Games in Victoria, what we'll see is a significant strain on the existing system. Did the Sydney Olympics break Australia's sports system? Can video games and YouTube actually help kids play more sport? Today's guest is a former elite athlete who's channeled his passion for sport into human-centered design, creating programs that support people's health through movement. Keep listening if you've ever wanted to get more active. Welcome to The Thought Follower. I'm Joe Mackay. I've always had a lot of questions about life, and this show is my quest to find some answers. Each week, I chat to a thought leader to hear what's going on in their space. Let's jump into the next episode. So my next guest on The Thought Follower is co-founder and chief design officer at Kinder Lab, which is a sports innovation agency, and founder and chief experience officer at Crest Surf Clubs, Adrian Tobin. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joe. Great to be on. Hey, appreciate it. Cool titles you've got there. How would you describe what you do in a couple of sentences? My focus is understanding the needs of people and then applying creative tools that better serve them or deliver them great experiences. It all starts with empathy for me and then translate that into creative outputs that can generate commercial outcomes. The mission of KinLab is making sport better. What does that mean for you, that mission? Creating a healthier world. Sport has the ability to get people to move, to connect and be healthier human beings. And so the trick then is, is how do you make it easier for people to move and play sport and enjoy themselves? And so that ties directly into how do we help sport? How do we help lifestyle businesses to design and deliver better experiences that increase the likelihood that people are going to be able to move, get active and connect with each other? It's an interesting space. If I look at my journey with sport, I got signed up in soccer at four or five. I have no idea whose idea that was. There was always sports gear lying around in the backyard. At a certain point, I was hooked and sport just became a core need and interest of mine and, and always has been. So the idea of needing to design it as a product is quite interesting. How do you approach that? Every sport's different. Every person is different and we all have different motivations, intrinsic, extrinsic. And so the more you understand what those motivators are for more significant groups and customer segments, etc. That allows you to work out what an eight-year-old boy starting out on their journey in skateboarding needs to drive and increase their motivation and get to a place where they are doing that more often, whether that's mm. skateboarding or surfing or football or cricket. For me, it all starts there and moves into a place where you're trying to pull together insights from that group of people to transition that into what product or service is going to meet that need for them. In many cases, it's a problem that you're solving. Innovation is about solving a problem for as many people as possible. If you can solve a problem for as many people, you're going to make money if it's monetized or Mm. social impact across a broader base. And for us, what we do The more we can tap directly into that voice of the customer, Mm. the more likely we are to transition that into an experience that a large number of people engage in and and enjoy. Could you give an example, maybe in one sport or one group, there's some barrier to participating in sport? Your research has found and how you go about solving that? 
Yeah. Surfing as a physical activity is highly engaging for mm. people. The surf culture extends around Australia and because we live on the coastlines, it extends to a point where people wear surf brands, but they're not a surfer. And so the attraction of being a surfer or being out in the ocean in the pastime is actually quite attractive, but it is incredibly difficult. And if anyone yes. is learning to surf right now or trying to get better, completely understands how hard surfing is. And that's predominantly because of the ocean. The ocean is its own beast and you need mm. to respect, trust and work with it and understand how to manoeuvre in an environment that people just aren't comfortable in or haven't grown up in. One of the most significant innovations happening across the global sports sector right now is wave technology. Surfing is being disrupted because of it and will continue to be disrupted because of it. But it's extending the marketplace. It's allowing the people who can't get in the ocean to surf in a much more safe, structured way. Mm. We talk to significant amounts of Americans that would love to surf but are afraid of sharks and seaweed and things that are in the ocean that even Australians think, well, that just mm. comes with it. For us, when we started on the surf park journey, that started with Kelly Slater's wave company. They designed it to create the perfect wave. It wasn't how do we commercialise this. Then we came in through the invitation of Kelly Slater's wave to work out who the customer was for that property. I was very fortunate to work on designing that experience with the team there. That was the first foray into wave and the potential of what wave technology could truly do and how it could open up the marketplace and, and allow people to surf. And all of a sudden, once that starts to happen, people can see the potential that there are one surfer to 50 aspirational surfers. Yeah. That's a huge yeah. number. Hmm. Wave technology is targeting that 49 that aspire to surf but can't because the ocean is too hard. I, hmm. I, I'm unable to progress quickly enough when I do try to become a surfer. And so it, it's about understanding that particular type of consumer. What does a 20 to 30-year-old in New York City want in order to build a relationship with surfing and become a surfer? So in our research that we have with lots of young kids and people is what's actually sticky in participation in a sport or a recreation is progression. Venues can offer that because they're sending a similar wave down over and over and over. So I can put my turn in the same spot over and over and then that gives you repetition which gives you skill progression, which makes it sticky. And then all of a sudden, within a month, you have someone who can paddle out, jump up on a wave and surf it. So I think in any job, any line of work, there's a customer. You've talked a lot there about customer insights and how they can drive how you go to market and produce an offering. What are the principles that you apply at that broader level? Like what are the kinds of questions you're asking? How do you approach surfacing those customer insights, whatever the field might be? We generally, myself and my team on the KingLab side of what I do, I'm a mixed method researcher. I believe in qualitative research as much as I do quantum, putting those two things together to unearth insight to move forward. It's looking at what questions we have that we'd like answers to and what types of research are going to answer that for us. So it's putting together what that looks like and drawing that data down we're going through what we call a synthesis process, which is looking at multiple different data points and theming and essentially looking for consistencies across that data that unearth real insight, consistent across a market, segments and individual people. And so through that, we're looking for what do I need? What do I want? How do I behave? Or what do I do? That's generally how we go about what we do and my specialty area 
is ethnographic or social anthropology and ethnographic research. For KinLab, it's very much a focus around living and being in people's shoes, going into context and environments to understand what that looks like. If you want to understand people's attitudes, perceptions and behaviours are, you can't truly find out that information in a white room, in a focus group, through survey. Self-reporting of behaviour is a significant bias in data. Through our work with KinLab, I've spent countless hours and days in locker rooms, sporting fields, point breaks, car parks, homes, workplaces, shops and stores, intercepting people and interviewing them to understand what that relationship looks like. That's essentially how we unearth and understand. Then the transition is how do you get into ideation and creativity to unlock the opportunities and design what solutions to solve people's problems or to take advantage of an opportunity. At a micro level, let's say I'm in my office job and the accounts payable team just isn't paying invoices for is there a set of steps or like an approach you'd recommend to anyone who's trying to surface what's holding the customer why is this customer not behaving in a way i'd expect at a really micro level is anything you could suggest yeah absolutely data will tell you that something's happening and how it's happening so for an accounts payable or whatever it may be the data will tell you they're paying slowly or they're not paying on time but it won't tell you why which is what you're talking to that's the power of ethnographic and qualitative research is going and uncovering that why because without the why you're unable to design strategy or tactics because you need that why and you want to validate those hunches so it's speaking to those particular customers obviously you don't want to do it in a confronting fashion you're going there to help understand why are you behaving the way you're behaving then you draw that if you go and talk to 12 of those customers who are paying slowly, then look for consistencies that exist across that cohort of people. Anyone can do this. It's the art of being able to uncover what that why is. We have this, the rule of five whys. The more that you're able to continue to push and understand that five levels, the why, then you'll get the true insight that you're looking for. And so anyone can talk to the people they serve with the intent of understanding why they're behaving the way that they're behaving pull that data into a team Mm. meeting and then look for consistencies and then address that tactically, strategically. It's it's really that simple. Yeah, I love that five why framework and you definitely get at least five whys from I've got a three-year-old, which is always fun. Tap into that eight-year-old. Be a curious person all the time, no matter where you are or what you're doing. And the more curiosity drives who you are, you will continue to be a problem solver and the world needs problem solvers. And problems get solved by people who are curious because they understand the why. So that was a piece of advice I got through university from a mentor of mine that pays me now still Mm. and will continue to pay me for the rest of my life. And I'm teaching that same principle to my children. Hey, it's Joe here. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Every chat in this season, The Thought Follower, is very different. Talk to economists, creatives, elite athletes, venture capitalists, CEOs, and a bunch more. You never quite know what you're going to get. So make sure you subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Let's get back to the chat. So looking at that bigger picture with agencies like KinLab, you're focused on making sport better. What do you think needs to change in the sports landscape, say, the next 10, 15 years? Is it a question of money? How do we get back on track? How do we fix this unsustainable model? We need to get better at saying no. 
and stopping things in the Australian sports sector. We've had a significant habit of just adding. We'll do this new program. We'll do this new thing. The per capita amount of professional sports teams we have in this country is crazy as far as Mm -hmm. I'm concerned. What we really need to start doing is less to maintain sustainability. And one of the key first steps for the system is to essentially audit itself and say, what isn't working? That can be a really tough thing to do because when you do that, that can mean people's jobs. That can be really hard to do, but if it's not commercially viable or it's not having the impact, then we should stop doing it. That's number one. The other challenge is volunteerism. Volunteers continue to reduce because we continue to have life pressures. We don't have the volunteering base and hours that we used to have 30, 40 years ago. And so when you're reliant on a delivery system at the front line that requires somewhere between 80 to 90 to 95% of volunteerism to support its delivery and you've got a reducing workforce, you've got some challenges. And so by actually asking questions around the longer-term viability of some of the program delivery, we need to ask some tougher questions about what we stop because our workforce is not expanding. It's shrinking and it's shrinking quite quickly. I play Sunday afternoon soccer. My wife plays Sunday afternoon soccer. Is that what you're talking about when you talk about grassroots, when you talk about delivery of a program? Is it the grassroots? Yeah, absolutely. Let's use a product we just helped do some redesign work on, which is Cricket Blast, the entry-level product for cricket in Australia for kids aged 5 to 12 up into that echelon as well to help them introduce themselves to the game of cricket, the skills required, and then that program provides them with a pathway of progression that allows that child to go from, I've never played cricket other than in the backyard, to now I'm well positioned as a preteen to continue to play cricket on a Saturday afternoon and then on to your later life where cricket can always be something that I'll go back to, that is. And so, yeah, hopefully that gives you a little bit of background. Yeah, it's fascinating for me, our daughter, she's three and Women's World Cup at the moment is a focus as like a soccer household. The soundbite that goes around is you can't be what you can't see. I'm really excited that the TV is going to be on with women playing sport at the highest level more and more into the future for my daughter. I'm really happy that that's happening. But some of what you talked about earlier was just around what are the barriers to participation? Often they're more logistical or they're practical. Is it borne out in the customer data that you're seeing that you can't be what you can't see or is it is a little bit more granular and, and practical than that? Absolutely. What they say is true. Kids need to be able to see people who have come from a place that they're in right now and got themselves to where Sam Kerr is, for example, mm. or any of the amazing women on that football team. I'm a football fan myself and taking my daughter along to a couple of the matches and we can't wait for that. Uh, and so... And it's been important for my daughter, who is only starting to build a relationship with football, is that she's been exposed to Sam and read Mm -hmm. Sam's books and see her in magazines. But what's been really interesting for her is the value role that FIFA as a gaming product has played, where she's been able to go into that game 
build herself with her own facial features, a jersey with her name on the back of it. And that goes way beyond what's one of the most valuable aspects to what football has is not only the fact that it's going to be in our country, that our young girls and women and dads and mums of girls are going to go along to these games. There's also these aspects or products or experiences in the homes that drive even further. That's what we've seen with the cultural phenomenon that is backyard cricket in Australia. And we just saw that with Bluey and what they did with one of their episodes around cricket, which was absolutely phenomenal, which cricket didn't pay for. That just came from the producers, which is going to be game-changing for kids of four to five and six-year-olds being exposed to what cricket is about. The more that you can position it into the household and how social connection between parents and kids Mm. or kids and kids, how sport can be positioned into the household that then builds out from there. It's interesting to hear you talk about the role of technology in supporting physical participation in sport. I'm wary of technology and its role in kids' lives and the default view seems to be technology is the opposite of participation in sport. Kids are hooked on this and they're addicted to that and So I think it's refreshing to hear they feed off each other to an extent. It's even like progression in skills. You talked about what makes a sport sticky. Watching a YouTube short with the Rabona move, that Ronaldo signature trick that you can watch 50 times and practice it in the backyard, that's the kind of stuff that will help little kids run out on Saturday morning and play soccer, real soccer, because the tech kind of helps them engross it more. So it's an interesting perspective I hadn't looked at before. Maybe just to change tack slightly, the show being the thought follower, I'd love to ask you, what does thought leadership mean to you? Thought leadership for me is predominantly validated authority to share a position or share a thought on a particular topic. And it's thrown around a lot. You'd see a lot of people positioning themselves as thought leaders. My major bugbear is that many people who are positioning themselves as thought leaders don't necessarily have a decade of research or a focused effort into a particular space that allows them to step up onto a platform and encourage and guide others who are looking to them for that. One of the most powerful thought leaders you can have are the people you serve. The more that you understand the people you serve and the better you serve them means that you're going to have better outcomes. The collective group of people you serve are the thought leaders you should be tapping into a little bit more than someone operating in the industry and has a certain level of understanding. But what level of depth do they have of an understanding of the people that you serve? Because that's where your bread's buttered whether it's social impact or it's commercial outcomes, the better you are at doing that, the more successful you'll be as a professional. That take on thought leadership is almost something you need to have a benchmark level of experience or whatever it might be. I look at it from the other side to say we don't necessarily choose if we are thought leaders or not. Like Maybe that's more being an influencer. There are people out there, for better or for worse, who can lead people in different ways but well, leadership is not something that you qualify for as such it either happens or it doesn't your sphere of influence is really the thing that changes i might be a thought leader sitting around the dinner table with my family they might be led by what i think and my opinions if i'm a ceo of a company of 50 people those 50 people might be led by that and this idea of leading people's thoughts happens and not everyone is doing that in the best way but then again how do we assess that or judge if people are being influenced by someone, that's where the definition ends. 
Is there a thought leader out there that you follow? When it comes to the human-centered design side, Nick Baumer, a friend who wrote an amazing book called User Palooza, which is about the skill and art of undertaking user research and applying ethnography to deeply understand the needs, wants, attitudes and behaviors of people. Whenever he speaks, whenever he posts something, it's always incredibly insightful and I find myself Mm. learning more and more and stretching myself. And Nick is incredibly intelligent and articulate and I've got a pretty good BSO meter when I know that someone's probably not necessarily on the level but that's going to get harder and harder to do thanks to generative AI. We're going to see significant rise in thought leaders because you can put something into chat GPT and it'll punch out insight for you. And so people that want to position themselves as thought leaders are going to be able to leverage that without having done enough in that topical area. The minute you have to stand on a stage at a conference in front of 200 people, if you've only used generative AI to come out with your insight, you're going to be up there on the stage with your pants down, I think. (laughs) Yeah. You you can't look anywhere without bumping into AI. I use AI to prep for the show brainstorm questions. I use it in my marketing day job. It's such a powerful tool. There's this tidal wave of content that's coming, this AI-generated content, and it's just going to be a sea of it. Discerning it at the moment is quite easy because the tech seems primitive in a lot of ways. It's incredibly advanced, but it feels quite primitive at the moment, but it's certainly coming. I really haven't figured out where I sit on it or know how much I care, I guess, like how big the impact of it really will be. Yeah, it's the same as many other aspects of your life. Again, I mentioned it crassly as a BSO meter. What is the author and source of what I'm reading? And Mm -hmm. then unpack that and make sure that it's authentic and then this person speaks not only on LinkedIn, but they're also conferences, they've got podcasts or they're talking on podcasts. I need evidence. I need sources of truth and proof Mm -hmm. that I should be listening to this person. If you can't gather together those and get that 80% or 90% confidence level, then you probably should be putting that person to the side and not elevating them to this person can guide my decision-making. The thing for me is, and it depends on how cynical you are, but we've kind of been in that paradigm ever since mainstream media was invented. It's Fox News or SMH or wherever you consume your mainstream media. You put your trust in those sources of information. Oh, absolutely. Um, the, the trick as professionals is don't allow yourself to be put into echo chambers. Push, and I have to do this on a regular basis, innovation lives in the outliers. The more you can understand the outliers, the 10 percenters on the outsides, the more likely you are to create something that serves everybody across that middle. I have to, on a daily basis, challenge my values and my attitudes and my beliefs and ensure that I'm taking myself out of that echo chamber because it is very easy and we don't necessarily choose to be put in the echo chamber. So as professionals, whether you're a thought leader or a business professional, each day you should be pushing yourself to go outside of the norm to understand what is the view of someone who does not share my values or share my views because that is still incredibly interesting and how can I use that in what I do day to day because we're all serving people at the end of the day. So the more that you understand people, the more that you can do your job in a much more powerful way. That's probably what scares me the most about this and it's not just AI but the algorithms around social media are getting so advanced that you don't realise how deep in the echo chamber you are. You think that 
everyone's social media feed looks the same, that what you're seeing is a barometer for what is out there in the world when it's tightly honed to what you want it to be telling you. That echo chamber is only getting more deep and tightly nuanced. Hey, it's me again. If you've made it this far, I hope you're enjoying the episode. If you really like the show, then a review and a like wherever you get your podcasts is a huge help. Otherwise, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear any guest suggestions, question recommendations, or any feedback about the show. Please get in touch. Enjoy the rest of the episode. So the question I want to put to you next is, do you see yourself as a thought leader? This is a little bit of imposter syndrome. This is the first podcast I've done and I generally work closely with the clients and people I work with and guide them in their thinking. They lean on me and in the background, not necessarily publicly. Yes, I would view myself as someone tapped into the voice of the people they serve and help them think about what they are doing and, and to help them better serve their customers and be more successful. The other aspect is there's very few people, companies like KinLab, who are applying human-centered design the way we have with sport over a number of years. I work on specific things in breaks of time, whether it be three months, six months, etc. I can be a thought leader because I've got the research. I know what the market conditions look like. The answer to that question is, yes, it's been much more in the background. I'm thinking about sharing more of what I know now after over a decade of applying human-centered design in sport and prior to that, social impact issues and then Mm. having the fortune of working with 43 different sports. I can talk with authority on that. So I feel like I've got that validation that I can step into a more public forum. But at the moment, I'm dealing with that imposter syndrome where, for me, is how do I make sure that when I'm talking to people and sharing insight, that it's packaged in a way that it really makes sense that someone can act on. You touched on the imposter syndrome there. Where does that come from? In a previous life, I was a professional athlete. So as a surf Ironman, I was contracted to Kellogg's Nutrigrain. I raced for my country in swimming. I played sport at a really high level at that one percenters. When you're in that competitive environment against the best of the best in what you do, you can be found out really quickly. Thought leadership is high performance. You Mm -hmm. need to be in that top one to five percent of people on a topic making sure that I felt really confident I can step onto a stage or a podcast and speak with authority that puts me in that top one to five percent of people on a particular topic and so that's where that imposter syndrome comes from I've got myself to a point now where I know enough to step into that realm and share what I know and the opportunities that I can see in the world to do things really differently and that's where Crest Surf Clubs comes from I've done a lot of consulting in the wave bench space in the surf park space over a number of years when we started working with the team in new york i saw this as a significant opportunity to be not just someone who consults to the industry and to people who are building wave venues around the world that i felt so confident and engaged in this opportunity that i stepped into now becoming a property developer into now becoming a lifestyle venue creator so i'm not just a consultant to the industry i'm actually someone who put their money where their mouth is and are doing what I'm Mm. encouraging lots of other people to do. So just to go back to your sports grounded mindset, it's very evident who's the best. And this comparison between sport and business comes up all the time. Athletes make great corporate speakers and leadership. The more I think about it, the more problematic it becomes for me because I'm realising the world of work and life is so open-ended. Sport, whatever your sport 
is closed-ended. There's a really finite set of rules. Someone crosses a line first or scores more points. It's a closed set of rules in a very small, finite game. But life just isn't like that. Work isn't like that. And you said that attempt to benchmark yourself in a professional sense came from your sport-based mindset, but it's impossible to say with any certainty, I'm the top 1% in X or you might have sales numbers or it might be revenue or an IPO listing or whatever. But I would say in 99% of work contexts, there isn't any real benchmark or a process we can use to rank people. And obviously so much is spent on trying to do that. But I actually, as a sports lover and someone who's fascinated about the world of work and how to improve my performance at work, I've often lent on my understanding of sport and how that works. But the more I go through things, the more problematic it feels to me because it's just, it's not the same. What do you reckon? I tend to agree. It is incredibly easy to set a goal because we create competitions in sport. It's got to be a trophy or a medal or I've got to be number Mm. one. I'm just getting up every day and I'm trying to do my personal best and be at my best. I'm not always going to be that, but how do I get up every day, try my best and achieve something that is meaningful to me. I do some mentoring of athletes that are transitioning into the business space is how do you stop worrying about the end result in sport? They talk a lot, focus Mm. on the process. How do you just get up every day and focus on trying to be the best that you can be that day? And that's really relevant to any professional in any stage of their life. I've been fortunate to have some of the best coaches in the world back when I was racing that taught me about process and the value of focusing on every day rather than the end of the season or that next race. And so that was really helpful. And then resilience, especially as an entrepreneur, is that level of comfort in failure, knowing that I'm not going to get it right all the time. It's then about the ability to consistently bounce back and also deal with challenges that continually surface. Elite sports people need to be the best version of that they can be, whether that's in recovery, particular training session or media engagement or whatever it is, how are they finding their best selves? That is something I believe elite sports people can really share. You talked about trusting the process and how you set yourself up to be the best that you can on a given day. Are there things that you do in your personal life to set yourself up that way? I try to do the best. I don't always achieve this. Having three kids and a couple of companies, but I try and embed mechanics that allow me to address some challenges. First and foremost, I'm a significant advocate of positive mental well-being. I have a psychologist that helps me from a mental health perspective. Having someone in your corner from a mental health perspective, as much like a personal trainer, can be invaluable. I structure my day in a way that I know when I'm going to be my best to do the tough things. We get trusted by our clients to solve complex challenges that they can't solve themselves and there's a lot of pressure that comes with that and I know when I'm not necessarily going to be my best and what tools or tasks I should do around that I also know where and can find joy that's another key thing that I encourage every professional to do is find those moments of joy my kids are a source of joy for me just taking five minutes and playing on the play mat with them where nothing else matters but what's in front of you and their ability to be able to be in the moment Mm. I draw on that and the other aspect to me is my relationship with the ocean I've grown up with it since I was a kid I probably feel more comfortable in the ocean than I do on actually on hard land and if I need to reset my brain or I need just time away from everything i don't take watches i don't take anything out there i go and be with the ocean and move with the ocean and surf and do things that help me disconnect to find that place where you can just be the truest version of yourself so there's the process piece and there's how you kind of set yourself up and try and be your best every day 
as a leader in business though, is there something you're measuring yourself on, whether it's a result or an outcome? Like how do you know at the end of the year if it's been a good year or a bad year? There's a couple of metrics. There's always the performance of the business on the bottom line. That's an mm-hmm. easy one to point to. But I'd make it a focus of mine to regularly touch in with my kids, my wife, my team and our clients. And if they're giving me direct feedback on how I'm going at any given moment, and that can take a sense of bravery, and I'm not calling myself a brave person, but when you ask for people's direct feedback, to me, they're the measures of success. If my wife is telling me you're doing well as a husband, if my kids are telling me, dad, you can tell in the way that they interact with you, that you're giving them the time they want and they love you day in and day out. And then if your staff are telling you you're helping me find my best version of myself, and then your clients are telling you you're playing a role in us being successful, then that to me, they're the key metrics. And then if I'm doing those things, then, you know, it's happy life. It's understanding that each day it's about trying to be the best version of myself and getting regular feedback as I go to ensure that eventually that outcome is going to look after itself because each day I'm doing the right things. This is also the part of you touched on when you stand in front of the auditorium full of people and present today, I'll produce this podcast. It'll hopefully look quite seamless, but that's social media. That's the internet. There's always that curtain of post-production of filtering. That's an example where life doesn't happen like this. Again, from a sporting field perspective, you step onto that field and you play well or you don't. And you can't hide it going back to my past life. If I hadn't done a training session or if I had missed something, I'd get found out. I love that about sport is that there's no place to hide. And I feel like that's one of the challenges that I have as a businessman is there's plenty of places to hide in business. And that's why I haven't stepped into this world too much is that I wanted to make sure that I could do it with absolute authenticity and authority. Because if you don't, you get found out when it comes to elite sport. So... It's really interesting, this idea of being authentic, being who you are. You touched on the importance of mental well-being, but also in business, there isn't a place to hide. If I'm honest with myself, like there are days when I do want to hide. I'm not up to it. And so if I am being authentic and I'm prioritizing my mental well-being, there are times when I do need to step back from things or slow down or acknowledge that this isn't going to be my best day in that particular part of my life, but maybe it can be a great day in another part. You can't play a grand final every day in life. How do you balance that? Openly communicating that you can't always be your best self and then knowing when you are Mm. and when you're not and then if you're not, knowing what's going to help you get back onto a level term again. That's a key way that I use my relationship with the ocean. When I feel that way, it's the best place for me to be and then I know that every time I come back, I'm going to feel fresher and better for it. So it's being honest with yourself as well as honest with people around you. The more that the team is aware of when you're your best and when you're not, what you work on, what you don't work on at certain times in the day, Mm. throwing a flag in the air and saying, today's not my best day, can anyone cover for me or can we just push it? Can we sculpt things that allow me to find my best self again? I'm going to do whatever I can right now to go and find my best again. Can someone run point for me while I'm sorting that out? And so that just comes from open and honest conversations with the people around you, but then also yourself because we spend 90% of our day talking to ourselves. (laughs) That's so true. I I bumped that number up even higher, to be honest. Adrian, it was great to chat to you. Thanks so much for sharing a little bit about what you know. For anyone who wants to get in touch, what's the best way to follow along with what you're doing? 
connect with me on LinkedIn. Feel free to ping me a message if you'd like. I'm always open to having a chat with people and connecting. So that's the best place for me. And then if you'd like to check out anything that I'm doing, two best places to do that are drop Kinlab into your search engine of preference to check out the sports innovation agency that I lead. Or if it's surf parks and wave venues and wave technologies, more your jam, drop Crest Surf Clubs into that search engine and check out what's happening with what I'm building and my team who are amazing over there in the United States as we try and build the world's first private member surf club. Nice one. Adrian, thanks for the chat. No worries. Thanks, Joe. I really appreciate it. Thanks, mate. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to support me or the show, best way is to subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And please get in touch with me on LinkedIn. Love to hear from you with any guest recommendations or feedback on the show. See you on the next one.